Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Preston Dennett, um, an old friend I know from uh, submitting to you know, science fiction, fantasy, and horror anthologies, particularly Writers of the Future. Um, uh, Preston, we'll have to we'll have to cover the Topango Canyon story at some point too, because that's <laughs> that's if you're comfortable about talking about it. If not, that's fine. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, but but today we're going to talk about um, you know. A topic I, I don't often talk about, but I have talked about in the past, but I'm here today with the real deal. So Preston is going to you know, provide you with a little bit of a little bit of his background, but um, you know, he spent a ton of time investigating uh, you know, UFO cases around the world. And you know, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but uh, Preston, welcome. Um, and and uh, can you just tell the audience a little bit about, you know, your background, where you're from, um, and then how you got into investigating these, uh, you, you know, these, these sort of um, incidents? Yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks, Sean. Um, well, let's see. I'm originally from Illinois, Chicago, Illinois, uh, but my family of eight people, six kids, I'm number five. We moved because we did not like the cold weather. So when I was about seven years old, we pioneered over to California. Uh, that was, let's see, 1972 or so. And lived here ever since. And uh, grew up in a little community called Topanga Canyon, which is just west of Los Angeles. And lived a fairly normal life. Uh, grew, grew up, became very interested in science. I think I thought, you know, I was just thrilled with science. I thought, here are the answers to the universe. So was very scientifically minded growing up and uh, did not believe in UFOs or the paranormal or life after death or any of this. I was vehemently skeptical because I know how far away the stars are. There's just no way aliens could get here, certainly not using propellants. And... Uh, had no interest in these subjects whatsoever. It was never taught in schools. It wasn't taken seriously really in the media at all, except for maybe that show In Search Of <laughs> with a, you know, Leonard, Leonard Nimoy. Nimoy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I watched and thought, mm -hmm. you know, they showed a UFO episode and uh, interviewed a family who thought they saw something. I'm like, mm, no, they didn't. They're sadly deluded. And I remember when I was a teenager, my brother, Mark, my older brother, came running into the house, said he'd seen a UFO. And he's like, it's, it was at treetop level. It was, you know, metallic and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Mark, you did not see a UFO. And I didn't even want to listen to it. I'm just go, go away. That was kind of my response. And I was, let's see, I was, it was 1986. So I was 21 years old. I remember the day exactly, November 17, uh, a news report came on and it was my birthday, you know, by the way, Oh, what strange coincidences. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and it, you know, it was Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, one of these major news guys. And he started talking about a UFO sighting over Alaska. And it was a very brief news report as they usually are on this subject, but they talked about this pilot of a Japanese commercial airliner over Alaska mm -hmm. who had a, allegedly seen a UFO. 
It was Captain Kenju Tirochi. And uh, they showed his face and they're like, ha, ah, this guy thinks he saw a UFO. Ha, ha, ha. You ever seen a UFO, Jane? No, I haven't. You? No. And it was very tongue in cheek. And of course, I later found out that this was a very well verified sighting, which appeared on radar, had multiple witnesses, had tracked their plane for over an hour. They requested a course change. It still followed them. And it was a great case. But at this point, none of that was in the news report. It was very jokey, not serious at all. But they did show the picture of this pilot. And I thought to myself, that poor man, you know, how could he possibly believe this over Alaska? Hmm, probably a reflection off the ice cap is what my sort of go-to was which was very naive. I mean, there's an ice cap over Alaska. It's like, really? <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I just thought, well, he's throwing his career away. I hope he realizes that, which turned out to be true. But I couldn't get it out of my head. I'm like, this guy's a pilot of a large commercial airliner. Why would he say this? And that's when I approached my brother. I'm like, you heard about this crazy deluded pilot? He's like, no. I told him. I'm like, you said you saw a UFO, right? He's like, oh, yeah, I told you. I'm like, well, tell me again. And he described a really dramatic sighting. And this time I was ready to listen. And he described how he was driving down Reseda Boulevard with his two friends. And uh, Phil and Greg, who I knew, and came, saw this object about 50 to 100 feet away, just above the telephone wires, metallic saucer, colored lights, a dome on top silent hovering and then it started moving and it would zip across the sky and up ahead of them and then wait for them to catch up and so they're chasing this thing down the street basically and uh, they started seeing other people chasing it too so there's a whole group of cars chasing this thing down the road for about 15 minutes until it zoomed like 20 miles across the valley 10 whatever and uh that was essentially it. And I'm like, are you kidding, Mark? You know, sure it wasn't a helicopter. He's like, no, I was right next to it. And he says, if you don't believe me, ask Phil, ask Greg, his friends. And I did. I called them up and they were thrilled that someone would actually listen to them. So it was clear to me right from the beginning, he had seen something unusual. But I'm like, mm, alien spacecraft, I don't think so. And I started asking other people in my family and none of my other bro brothers and sisters had seen anything, nor had my dad. My mom had passed away some years earlier. Uh, but my sister-in-law did, my brother's wife. And she's like, yeah, me and my two friends were in Van Nuys and we saw these lights hovering over Van Nuys Air Force Reserve Base. My first thought was, well, it's you know, a, an airport probably a plane you saw. She says, no, it was hovering in place, three lights in a triangular formation. And I'm like, and she described just anomalous lights. And she's like, go ahead, call Adlai, her friend. And I uh, talked to him and he described essentially the same thing, except he says he remembers it zipping off. My sister-in-law did not say that. So I'm like, huh. And I started asking other people, and I found out, I, I mean, we have a family friend, Sylvia Walters, who's a, you know, a flight instructor, a pilot. And she was in her home in Topanga and was drawn outside by this loud buzzing noise. 
And she had a friend with her as well. And they ran outside and there was this egg-shaped object coming low over their house in a sort of a meandering way. I'm like, you sure it wasn't a helicopter? She says, Preston, this thing was about 200 feet overhead. It was a large, white, egg-shaped object, featureless. I'm like, could it have, you know, it wasn't ball lightning, it wasn't a shooting star, it wasn't a satellite. It was clear from her description. So I started to really get upset <laughs> because I could not explain this stuff away. And I went to the bookstores, the libraries. I'm like, swamp gas, you know, this is what I'm going to find. I'm going to find an explanation for this. And uh, there were very few books that were skeptical. Most of them were very much a proponent uh, of this field and listed lots of first-hand cases. And I was shocked to find out that there were very reputable witnesses, you know, astronomers, military officers, pilots, and uh, quite a bit of information on this. The subject was being taken seriously and had been studied for decades. It was clear from the beginning there was a cover-up, which was demonstrable. This was not speculation by any means because through the Freedom of Information Act, many, many documents had been obtained from virtually every intelligence agency in the US, whether you know it's the Air Force or CIA, NSA, FBI, you name it. So that's when I started like, okay, let's buckle down. Let's ask everyone I know. And I brought it up at work. I worked at that time as a, doing data entry and mm-hmm. part, part-time bookkeeping. I was working my way up to the, through the company. And uh, the lady I'd worked with for some years had her desk next to mine. I'm like, what do you think of UFOs? Because no one talks about this. Not then. They right. Didn't. And she's like, oh, me and my whole family saw one. I'm like, what are you talking about? Why didn't you tell me? She says, you never asked. I'm like, what did you see? She said, well, it was just this star-like light. We were up at, in the San Bernardino Mountains at Camp Julian, a church camp. And her whole family and everyone there watched this star-like object zoom across the sky, stop, zoom across, turn at right angles, and it went, did this whole dance for about an hour. And I'm like, are you serious? She's like, if you don't believe me, talk to my daughter. You know, you know her. She picks, you know, she would pick her up from work. And I did. And uh, she turned out had had a missing time encounter with gray aliens. And uh, I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> uh, and in walks Dorothy, who had also worked with. And anyone who meets Dorothy loves her. She's unfiltered, very outgoing funny as hell and uh she's like oh ufos yeah i totally believe in them one followed me home from the library like dorothy what are you talking about (laughs) because by this point i had books on the subject right Mm -hmm. and uh i'm like tell me what happened and this was i believe it was the late 1950s could be the 60s i'd have to look it up uh but at any rate she was a little kid uh 13 years old, about 15. And they had gone to the library, her and her best friend, Carol. And they came out from the library. This is the Pio Pico Library in Koreatown. I went down there and looked at it. You know, I did the whole investigation. And uh, she said that they had exited the library at 8.55. It closes at nine. Their mom was picking them up when the library closed and they wanted to smoke a cigarette without being caught by their mom. 
And so they're sitting there on the steps of the library smoking a cigarette when this star-like object drops down out of the sky and hovers across the street right over the telephone wires. And it was a flying saucer, a classic disc. And I had her describe it. She said it was metallic, sort of a silvery gray, dullish, with colored lights, red, green, yellow, blue. She said it was really pretty, actually, and made no noise that she could hear. I interviewed her friend as well, Carol, who said the same thing. And they were thrilled and excited and jumping up and down and pointing at it when their mom drives up. And uh, she sees it as well. And her eyes go wide and she shuffles the kids into the car and they race home. And they're like, it's following us, mom, it's following us. I interviewed her mother as well, who's also named Dorothy, who was very skeptical of UFOs and told me throughout the interview, I do not believe in UFOs. I'm like, what did you see? She says, well, it looked like two pie pans stuck together. It had little lights around the circumference. It was quiet. It was right over our car. But I don't believe in UFOs. I'm like, okay, just tell me what you saw. <laughs> and uh, they all said, well, we live five minutes from the library. It takes them, you know, just five minutes to get home. It followed them the whole way. They ran inside because it was scaring them a little bit. It was just a couple hundred feet over their car. And they ran into the house up to the second story and looked out the window and it was still hovering in their front yard. It zipped back and forth two times and then took off at a 45 degree angle. Upwards, upwards, tiny little white dot in the sky and disappeared off in the distance. And Carol turns to the clock and it's now 10.15. She had a curfew. She's supposed to be back by nine. And she's like, I have to go home. Uh, she lived just a few houses down. And didn't want to go outside, but, you know, they walked her home, basically. And she's like, Preston, Dorothy's telling me this the first time. She's like, Preston, I don't know what happened to the time. And, uh, of course, there's a phenomena called missing time, mm -hmm. which basically points towards a closer encounter that you might not fully remember. There's amnesia involved with some of these onboard UFO encounter type events. I turned to Dorothy. I'm like, well, what do you think happened at the time? She says, I could not tell you. I don't understand it at all. Well, I just read a book called Missing Time by Bud Hopkins, which was soon to be a huge bestseller, but at that point had just been picked up by a small publisher and was recently published, mm -hmm. which you know talked all about these types of cases. And what was Bud Hopkins' um, background? Was he like a scientist or military? Nope. No, he was an artist, really okay. no, no science background whatsoever, but he sort of stumbled into this in very much the same way I did. You know, he started running into people he knew who were having these encounters. And uh, he became one of the leaders in this field fairly quickly because he was really the first to start talking about this. Well, not really, but I mean, his, he did it in such a way that was... Uh, very analytical and just put forth the information without trying to interpret it or overlay it with a belief system. Speaking of analytical and analytical approach, has anyone ever consolidated these um, reports and just kind of done an overlay on 
where they happen on a like on a map using mapping software or something like that. In other words, you know, the, the hypothesis I would test is is it correlated with location of either military installations, nuclear sites, um, or something completely different? Uh, you know, uh, this takes something that's even that would seem even crazy, like like location of ley lines or or you know places like Sedona, Arizona, with uh, you know uh, that allegedly you know have some sort of you know geomagnetic properties you know uh, anyway i'm throwing a uh, throwing a ton at you right now but has anybody ever done a study like that oh yeah absolutely there's been quite a bit of research into that and uh, i mean i did that with my own files after i collected a large enough database with some few hundred cases i'm like okay let's chart these <laughs> you know, let's find out what i can did do you did you put system. that in a did you put that in a book or is it or uh, is that just kind of on the side that was more on the side. Uh, uh, I have not done a full-on book on a statistical analysis, which is what I did. And it was evenly divided between men and women. It had no bearing on education, race, religion, politics, anything that I could find. It was very random. What I found was most sightings do occur in the suburbs with you know, 50% with like 30% would be rural and 20% urban. And yes, they are clustered a little bit more around Air Force bases. And there are, are clustered more in what have become, gotten a reputation as UFO hotspots, such as Sedona or the Santa Monica mountain range, where there's, for whatever reason, a lot of activity. Uh, San Luis Valley in Colorado. Uh, Gulf Breeze got a reputation for a lot of activity. Upstate New York, the Hudson Valley, where there would be these waves of activity, but it's absolutely planet-wide. Uh, every state has an enormous number of sightings. But if you look at the big databases of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, and NUFORC, the National UFO Reporting Center, uh, they are basically uh, in the United States, but do collect worldwide. And uh, the most common place to see a UFO is California, which correlates pretty much exactly to the fact, I mean, population-wise, we've got 40 million people here. So it makes sense that we're the leading producer of reports. I think Washington and Texas, and, I mean, it correlates very closely with population density. Uh, but there are certain areas which are UFO attractors for sure. So we do see a lot of sightings over Air Force bases, over anything technological, uh, nuclear power stations, dams, uh, factories, uh, things like that are definitely UFO attractors. Rocket launches, I mean, White Sands from the very beginning was a UFO magnet and became very well known for it and uh, extremely well verified. I mean, there are numerous reports from rocket scientists and commanders and high-ranking military officers who went public with their accounts and talked about this. So there are patterns for sure uh, to, to sightings. Okay. All right. Sorry, I didn't mean to take you off on a, 
on a, another. I'm about to take you on potentially another tangent, so <laughs> bear, bear with me. Uh, when so you've kind of, you've established a reputation as someone who um, solicits and documents a lot of these reports, and you've written uh, what over forty books. Is that accurate? Twenty nine. 29. I'll give you a little, it's a little precognition. You'll, you'll write over 40 books at some point. All right. So you've written about 29 books. Um, how do you, when someone approaches you with an experience, I would imagine there's probably four types of people. There's people who've genuinely experienced something. There's people who are just crazy there's people who are charlatans who just kind of want to what are seeking attention. And then the fourth, you know, might be some, some person representing a government agency who's, who's trying to create disinformation or prevent information from, from getting out. How do you vet these sources as they, as they come in? Yeah. Well, initially I came into this field with, no interview skills really at all uh, and was fortunate to have dealing with people I loved and trusted and knew quite well. So when you're talking to a family member or a friend you've known for years, uh, it's pretty easy to, you know, vet them because you know them and you can talk to their family and they've got, you know, their, my first step is always to find corroboration, corroborating witnesses and references. Mm-hmm. So initially that's where I sort of, cut my teeth on this and started to build a network of people who were having these experiences. So I started getting a lot of friends of family and friends of friends. And uh, so I had interviewed a good 50 or hundred people before I started having to really sort of professionally vet people, I guess you might say. Yeah. And uh, learned my interviewing skills at this point. And uh, there are various ways my MO, my method is usually to, to just allow the person to tell their story in a very casual setting and preferably face-to-face, which is often not possible. So over the phone or what have you, and just listen to what they have to say. And if it's a story that I feel like is worth pursuing and that it's, I feel like they are telling me the truth, just intuitively and based on the information they're putting forth, I will ask for a follow-up interview, which I, of course, record. And I will have taken notes at this point. So I will see if their story changes at all Mm -hmm. and how, and if it's too precise, you know, that's a red flag. uh, Because if it's like scripted, (laughs) I've learned like, "Hmm, that's not something I completely trust. So uh, after that, I would ask for corroborating witnesses or references, and uh, I will try to verify any information they put forth. Which is if they have a military career, um, you can verify that, especially these days, it's a lot easier uh, now that there's an internet. How do you do that? Um, do you just do you call the National Archives or? Uh, yeah, every avenue I can find. Uh, I will punch in their name usually and see if anything comes up, check out their social media. Uh, and 
if it's, I'll ask them flat out, you know, can you send me records? Uh, do you have any, you know, people will describe being healed perhaps. I'm like, do you, can you send me your medical records? You know, any hard information is always a plus. Uh, but you start to realize who's telling the truth and not for, because there's certain what I would call little markers mm -hmm. uh, in, in a person's account, which are details that perhaps are not full, really well known in the public arena. Uh, certainly not back then, they weren't about perhaps what the inside of a UFO would look like or what the ETs. So in other words, like common uh, characteristics that have not been made public, but that resonate, right? That you've heard yeah. in private accounts. Um, and, and these people don't know each other. So, you know, they, at least when you do your investigation, so it would be impossible for them to have like worked together to. Yeah. Well, fairly uh, unlikely, maybe not impossible. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, commonalities of like how, uh, what a UFO looks like inside, which is very consistent among reports. And uh, this was well before, <laughs> and this was a popular subject. It had not been popularized. It was still oh, play, the play devil is advocate on that one in particular. But, and I'm going the opposite direction, the, the um, less skeptical. How do you know that there's a common design? Let, let's say, let's say that uh, these things exist and, you know, there are multiple species, right? How do you, how do you, like, wouldn't they have different designs? Yeah. And we do see that, but as you interview each person, you're like, wow, these are really consistent. Um, Thomas Bullard, a folklorist was really the first to do any sort of st statistical analysis on people who claim to have been taken on board a UFO. And he outlined a pattern and so this is what happens and this is what people are seeing and this is what they're reporting. And his book is very dry reading. You know, the thing he put together was this fairly large manuscript and uh, basically very listing in its information. And, and I'm like, okay, this is exactly what I'm getting. And that was not like a, a book you find in bookstores by any means. It was privately published and just for researchers. And uh, as I built my own database, it was really astonishing to talk to these people uh, and hear them say essentially the same thing to the point where 80% of their information was the same. Each case does have unique elements, but when someone's taken on board a UFO, chances are they're going to describe rounded walls where the floor sort of rounds up into the wall, rounds up into the ceiling. Chances are they're going to say, you know, if you ask them, was it, how is it lit inside? How is it illuminated? It's brightly illuminated with no visible light source. And it's really amusing to hear people who have never heard of this try to talk about it. Like, I don't, you know, there, I don't know if the light was coming in through the window or what, but it was lit up inside and I could not find a lamp anywhere. And uh, they describe, you know, grays as they're popularly known now in mm -hmm. very similar detail. And the first time I heard that was actually my sister-in-law 
who I know and trust and love. And she finally came forth and said, you know, I didn't only see a UFO. I had another experience with, I don't know what they were, but I know they weren't human. I'm like, what do you mean? She said, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. But she said that she was walking outside of her home in Van Nuys with her dog late one evening. And uh, this is like 11.30 p.m. And saw two, what she thought were children, standing in front of Stag Street Elementary School under the streetlight there, under the, well, the floodlight in front of the school. She thought, that's odd. <laughs> what are two children doing out this late at night? And she's walking on the sidewalk right next to the school. So she's walking right up to them. And as she got within 10 feet of them, she's like, wow, they're bald. <laughs> you know, they've got large dark eyes. They're wearing jumpsuits. And she started to get a little frightened because she, she thought, are these, these kids wearing masks? What's going on here? And she's like, it wasn't Halloween. It was, this is midsummer. And she's about 10 feet away from them. And they sort of turn and look at her and they lock gazes. And she says, I don't know what to tell you, but they weren't human. I'm like, well, just tell me what you saw. Now, she had never read any UFO books. I go to her house daily. You know, she's an artist. Uh, she had never studied the subject whatsoever. And I did have books on the subject. And uh, she started to describe grays. I'm like, oh, if she tells me there's, you know, large dark eyes you know the skin color white and she just went right down the line she's got an eidetic memory or very near to it and was able to describe this in great detail and draw it and i'm like mm, this sounds like grays to me she didn't see a ufo she wasn't overlaying any weird religious beliefs over this she's not a religious person she's just telling me what she saw and that was sort of my real aha moment. I'm like, oh, this, it, there is something to this. Because here's someone I know is not lying. She's far too close to misperceive. This is right down the line, exactly what other people are reporting all across the country, the world for that matter. And uh, that's when I started to realize, okay, there are some ways to verify this. And I can tell you when someone has an encounter like this, their first thing out of their mouth is, please don't use my name. You know, I've got a good education. I've got a good job. I have no history of mental illness in my family. Uh, <laughs> something along those lines. I don't do drugs. You know, And they can become very emotional. They're very, very hesitant to speak. And it's not unusual for people to weep as you're interviewing them. Uh, because this is in many ways, a superlative experience for them, pushing them to the edge of uh, their emotions. And, you know, it affects you on multiple levels, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Uh, it is tough for them to deal with. And I do get occasional, what I would think are hoaxers. And they're very easy to tell because their stories are just off the wall. Or, you know, and people who are, clearly mentally imbalanced. My mom was a counselor. So we had a lot of books on psychology. And uh, I, would, I was just always very interested in psychology anyway. And I started to learn how to recognize you know, when someone's delusional or psychopathic or just somewhere on the spectrum, perhaps.
there are various ways. The best ways for me to determine if a person is telling the truth are those little markers. For example, as a general rule, when someone meets ETs face-to-face, they speak telepathically. And at the time, this was not super well-known. Mm-hmm. And to hear people try to describe telepathy and not even know that word, telepathy, it'd be like, if they were speaking, I don't even know how to tell you this, it was I was hearing their voice in my mind. Is, is, it, is, it, like an, is it always audible, or they also see images, or is it? smells like other things it's it's often audible in your home language in your primary language and it's almost always the first phrase is varies very little it's always the same first two sentences is the same in virtually every case which is you know don't be afraid have no fear you will not be harmed Um, but along those lines we mean you no harm so it starts to get really interesting. And then there's tiny little details, which you don't hear a lot about even today. Because uh, when someone's like taken on board, now you could just watch any program and say, well, make up your own story right. uh, based on what you've seen or read. But there are still these little details that aren't well known, such as, you know, the medical instruments perhaps there's a very strong medical theme that runs through onboard encounters or the shape of the examination table for example that's what a lot of people will say it's a table that they're put on uh, but just as often it's not it is a chair very much like a dental chair and that it's not super well-known. That's not covered a lot in the media for whatever reason, but, that, but that's what I often hear. So there are little tiny details. Like when some, there's, I like the medical instruments because those are almost, people don't know about them. And then when I hear someone describe the same darn thing, it's like, wow, <laughs> this is compelling. And at some point, it's just the preponderance that, the huge number of these stories. Can all these people truly be lying? It's just not credible. To- given, given the people who've come forward, but also people who have not, what prevalence of the population do you think have, have had these experiences? Just based, I mean, you know, anecdotally based on kind of the evidence that you've seen, if you had to estimate. Yeah, that was my first question, really, because I'm, I was so shocked to find out that I had family members who were having these encounters. And uh, I'm like, why didn't you tell me? They said, you were skeptical. You wouldn't have believed me, would you? I'm like, well, no, I wouldn't. I, but that's besides the point. You should have told me. This is important. I mean, if aliens are invading the Earth, people should know this. <laughs> and uh, so it was a good quarter of the people I knew right off the bat. But I read a quote from J. Allen Hynek. And if you know this field at all, you, you know Jalen Hynek is a pioneer in this field, the father of modern ufology. He was the astronomical consultant for Project Blue Book, the Air Force's official, I'll put that in quotes, right. uh, UFO study. Uh, like he was basically hired to debunk these things, right? Or to, to catalog yeah. and then debunk. Right. And he became very much 
appalled and disgusted with their scientific methods because they were focusing very much on prosaic cases, you know, ones that were obviously venous or what have you. And whenever they got a really good case, they would discredit the witness. And he ended up leaving and writing his own books on UFOs, which were much more, you know, truthful and scientific, a scientific approach. So he was the one one of the first to really bring science to this. There was just a handful of people, you know, D Dr. James McDonald, an atmospheric physicist, uh, Jalen Hynek, an astronomer, uh, Jacques Vallée, another astronomer, uh, Leo Sprinkle. There's just a few people who were approaching this from a scientific angle at that time. And J. Allen Hynek was quoted as saying that one in 40 people have been taken on board a UFO. And I, and I so read two and that. A half percent. Yeah. And I'm like, no, there's no possible way. Because if that's true, I would know somebody yeah. who's, you know, because I know 40 people. We all do. And that's what really got me out of my chair to start to ask every person I knew. And I didn't have to ask 40. I found, you know, people who had had missing time, two or three of them in my circle of family, friends, and coworkers. And I had all these books by this point. And so I surveyed the literature and I started surveying all the major researchers. And I ended up writing an article for the MUFON journal, Mutual UFO Network, and basically called it one in 40. You know, this is how common this is, according to the research on this subject. Now, now do you think this is one in 40 people who have had these experiences or one in 40 people who remember these experiences? Uh, well, that's a trick, tricky question <laughs> to answer. Yeah, I, yeah, I, no, I, I would say who's had these experiences. Uh, and I think there probably are some who don't remember. And that was sort of how this came up in the, like Bud Hopkins had interviewed people who had zero memory of it. But after, you know, being interviewed by him, realized that they probably had had experiences because there are certain markers one being a close-up sighting or missing time without realizing you've been taken on board. But to cap this all off, it was a, that was in 1990, I wrote that article. And it was a year later, 1991, that the Roper Organization, which is a formal polling organization, tackled the UFO subject, particularly you know, people who claim to have first-hand contact and did a, surveyed a bunch of people with sort of hidden questions in their survey, which showed the markers of someone who's had this sort of experience, which would be a close-up UFO sighting or an unexplained scar on your body or experiences in your early childhood involving figures that come into your bedroom or seeing a ball of light or you know various little markers. And they found, according to their survey, that one in 50 people show the markers of being a contactee, an abductee, experiencer. Oh, so this is, this is, so the one in 40, and then in this case, the one in 50 you're talking about are people who've actually had, not, not, this isn't, this isn't people who've just seen something in the sky. This is people who've actually been visited by entities. Yeah. Yep. According to people who have actually seen it somewhere between 10, 15 percent have claimed to have seen a ufo uh it's very hard to say because these uh one of the things i would always ask people 
did you report your sighting to the police, to a UFO reporting center? Yeah, like who would who would um, possibly report this to the police? Right? Yeah, very few, almost nobody. I'm going to yeah. say one in a hundred, right? And I'll, and I'll ask them, well, what about MUFON? And they're like, what's MUFON? <laughs> and if you go to the MUFON and look at their database or New Fork, they receive over 10, 20 reports daily. So you can times that by 100, and that would be conservative. Yeah, so we're talking, you know, a thousand reports daily. Uh, it's probably what people are seeing this at any given moment. Okay, well, here's here's what I think you know we'll do. I think now that we've kind of established, you know, what the relative prevalence is, or what you believe the relative preference is, and and how you kind of interview folks and and kind of some of the similarities they have. Um, what we're going to do is in the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about what sorts of experiences people have had and kind of what your take is on, you know, what these things actually are based on your research. Um, but before, before I end this episode though, uh, for the audience, if you've had any experiences like this, um, you know, please, uh, you know, comment or, or say something in the comments below. Um, you know, I'll see this. Um, I'll try to do my best to respond. And then also I'll pass on some of this information to, to Preston to, you know, potentially vet. So Preston, thank you very much. And uh, we'll continue this discussion shortly. Very good. Yeah. Thank you, Sean.